I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled, I love that word, nestled in our secret bunker. Somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced with a lackadaisical attitude by Magic Bat Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rock to the cradle of the blues. The strange creature sitting next to me, Mark C.C. Boyer, our black Ruff, ruff, ruff. Some like it. Ruff. And on the phone, a man who... Ted Bundy hadn't existed, he would have invented him. <laughs> How do we know that Kevin M. Sullivan and Ted Bundy aren't the same person? Because you never see photographs of them together. <laughs> it's, it's the only well, I never see photographs of you with yourself. That's, That's right. That's why you're imaginary. That's right, I'm the imaginary bro bear. I'm also very animated, which makes people think I'm a cartoon. Uh, about 13 years ago now, Kevin Sullivan was a guest on what was destined to be the world's greatest true crime radio show, True Crime Uncensored. And he sent me a, a little piece of uh, hefty bag that was haunted. Uh, Kevin, please tell the people what that hefty bag you sent me was. Well, hey, guys. It was actually a glad bag, and it was a very surreal little piece because it uh, was a uh, small piece out of a large green glad trash bag that uh, Ted Bundy had in his car and he always used these glad trash bags to put the uh, clothes of the victims in and he would dump these down in a dumpster uh, somewhere down the road. Uh-huh. When, when the murder kid came to Louisville had this uh, glad box in there, there were seven bags left out of ten. So he'd already used three, but anyway, that's what that was. Oh boy, was it was infamous thief. It was an honor and a privilege. <laughs> it's not your everyday item. No, it's not. Well, hey, Burl, why do you have that piece of glad bad hanging on the wall? Well, it's a true crime memento. Oh, did you kill crime somebody? Memento, yes. <laughs> would you kill somebody in Devon Door? Not me, personally. <laughs> I don't know what Don Waldman did with his, but he, he seemed rather stunned and mortified to possess it. <laughs> Well, welcome back to the program. Uh, I couldn't, Thank you. I couldn't resist inviting you after I saw that. Yes, once again, you once again, <laughs> once again, you gave into temptation. A man of I did. a man of your clergy background, your pastoral <laughs> restraint, your <laughs> commitment. Get out the window. Yeah, well, it just. <laughs> what is it they say in the in the in the Mystic East? When a man gets a direction, he loses seventy five percent of his religion. Now, I don't know how excited you get about doing another true crime book about Ted Bundy, but apparently the mere thought uh, just... (laughs) Everything goes out the the window. Push me over the edge. Well, listen, I have quit saying I'm not going to write any more books about Ted, but this really was the last one. Look, it has to be true. It has to be true this time, and I'll tell you why. Well, you run out of victims? 1,400 pages about Bundy in this case. I don't know where else I would go. But I will say this. This last book, which is the sixth, it's called uh, The Enigma of Ted Bundy, uh, Questions and Speculations about the most infamous serial killer in history, or something like that. Something like that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they all start sounding the same after 112 books. Started... What are you going to do? There's going to be Ted Bundy and Sunnybrook Farm. Yeah, there you go. That's probably the only place you could go with Bundy right now after that. But you know what? It's it's, kind of cool because it all started back in, you know, 2009 uh, when, uh, well, for me, 2006 when I started the research for the Bundy murders. But the Bundy murders were, of course, it's the full biography of of Bundy and a full treatment of the murders. And that's the book that really put me on the map because there were so many new things that came out in that right. book, and so that's really what gave birth to all of these other ones, even though I wouldn't write a second Ted Bundy book until 2015, I'd start on it, and then uh, in 2016, uh, that trail of Ted Bundy, which was the second, was published. So that that began a uh, kind of like a roll with the 
these additional books. And uh, I think this was a nice way to end this book. It's got a lot of really neat, cool things in it. And uh, I never repeat information on any of my new Bundy books. Um, I always add new interviews and testimonies of people that have contacted me, and I've, you know, found out that they are valid Bundy contacts. And then I add material and talk about stuff. So for this book, I wanted to go into a lot of the questions and speculations. It's the kind of thing that you can't go into, really, when you're writing either the biography or really right. some of these other books, too. But this was the perfect kind of like, if you could say, venue. Uh, it's kind of like a Q&A. Q &A after, after, you, after you give a talk, you have a question yeah. and answer thing, right? Well, you know, uh, what's really cool... Um, uh, God knows how many interviews I conducted when I was doing the bunny murders, but a number of them were on tape, and uh, other ones I just took uh, close notes, and I, once I had it written up, I had the people look at it, they said, yeah, that's correct, then I had them sign off on it so they can be published as is, and, but I had several lengthy tapes of people that I interviewed, and um, I talked to Jerry Thompson a lot, but one of our conversations were on tape and so I transcribed the tapes of Jerry Thompson who was the Utah investigator who really brought Bundy out of the shadows in Utah after he left Washington State to come to Utah to go to law school really and then kill people uh, and then I also have Ron Holmes and I have uh, uh, Don Patchen the uh, lead detective for the Tallahassee PD in, in Florida so it was interesting because when I started transcribing these tapes, there was a lot of stuff I had forgotten. And I never, ever had the intention of transcribing the tapes. Uh, you know, it was just, I thought this would be the perfect book for that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's in there. And then I did something I would normally not do, but it's so interesting. I know readers would like to see it in print. Bundy's last, uh, con well, confession tape in 1989 and it, it's, it, it's really a long one, to Dennis Couch. Hmm. And he was the Utah detective. Jerry Thompson was no longer involved in the case, obviously. And this was Bundy's last chance to try to live a little bit longer, so he gave this uh, round-the-clock last 48 hours of his life, maybe 72 hours, of confessions. And so Dennis Couch came to see him. Well, Couch held on to these tapes for years. And he released them a few years ago, so I thought, what better place to have than since I've transcribed these other tapes, and that's public property really it's not copyrighted by anybody right. i took that i listened to it you can find that on youtube I've, over the years i've listened to it maybe four times so i tra transcribed it and that's in the book and then it's just we just cover a lot of things for example all these women oh. that are coming forward now saying they were potential bundy victims and some of these people weren't even in areas where he was and, and really it, it, no matter who comes forward, even if they are valid victims, even if that's true, and most are not, maybe all are not, I, I don't know, but there's only one person that we know for a fact that ever got away with Ted Bundy, I mean, from Ted Bundy, and that was Carol DeRoche, because she came to the police immediately, and she's a part of the case, and they found her hair later in Bundy's car. But these other gals that come forward and they say, yeah, it happened to me and I had this done, I had that done. For most of these women, it's just not true. If it happens at all, it happened by somebody else. But, you know, we cover that. And there's just a lot of areas that we cover. And I also have added portions of the record that I've never added before. For example, in my Bundy book, uh, you know, the Bundy Murders, I added because I thought it was very interesting. Just a small portion of when uh, they followed Bundy for a couple months while he was back home in Washington State after he had been arrested and then gotten bail for the Carol Durant's kidnapping. And, and then he went home in no, late November, uh, or mid-November maybe of 75, and then he uh, into, came back to Utah in like February, early February of 76. The, the, the Seattle PD and the King County PD track, tracked him. And some of those surveillance observations are really interesting. So I published them in just a portion in the Bundy murders, the first book, and uh, people loved them. So later on in some of my subsequent, subsequent books, I published the rest of those. Well, I had never uh, had the Utah ones. I could have gotten them from Jerry, but I didn't. I didn't, I didn't think they were that, that important all those years ago. But I was able to obtain them for this book. 
huh. and I transcribed those. And they're really interesting, too, because you can see how Bundy had so many problems reacting to the pressure of law enforcement, kind of like on his tail. And so those are in there, and those have never been in print before, and those are uh, out of Utah. It's just a lot of things. So it really is a good way to tie the book up. Now, when, when all this uh, pressure that Bundy's experiencing knowing law enforcement's on his tail, yes. so to speak, yeah, he's got a real problem with it. Well, yeah, you'd think it would cause enough anxiety he'd want to act for him. But he well, knows if well, he yeah. acts out even more, he's yeah. going to be, I mean, that might be really difficult for him. Well, but, you know what? A couple of psychiatrists, psychologists were working with uh, Washington State. They anticipated Bundy would probably come back home after he was arrested. And it, really, everybody knew, you know, this is our guy. After he was arrested in Utah, not the first time in August of 2016, but when he was arrested in, in October, they knew who he was, but they, they thought he was a burglar when they first arrested him in August. But the detective said he's more than that. But when they got additional information and they really figured out who he was, and then he was charged in the crime, the abduction of Carol DeRanche in October of 75, he finally was able to make bail and they figured he'd go home. Well, the Washington authorities asked some psychiatric people what they could do, what was the best way to handle this, and they said this. They said, he needs to know that you're following him. He needs to be under that kind of pressure, because if he's not, he's probably going to relapse and commit another crime and kill another woman. So he needs to know that he's under that pressure. Now, you would think, because Bundy was such a cool, calm, and calculated killer, that the pressure of police surveillance wouldn't really bother him, but it bothered him greatly, and he acted out. Not, you know, it worked right. He wasn't going to try to kill another woman, but he would do things like, and he did this in Utah. He would do things like he'd come up and take their picture uh, of these detectives sitting in the car or take a picture of their license, or one day he came up and he tapped on the window and the detective rolled it down and he said, are you... Uh, COPD or are you a citizen or what? And he said, you're a citizen. I, I, I don't want that going on, but if you're a COPD, I mean, that's fine. So he was definitely under a lot of pressure. He was, I think I say in the book, in, in the bunny bar, it was like a cage. It, it's like, it was like a predator under glass. Oh, and everybody he's, he's was pacing around. He, we yeah, can't get out and he can't get up. <laughs> he's not liking it. So in that respect, he couldn't keep us cool, but when it came to murder, he could. So it was an interesting thing. So well, then he's all powerful. Yeah, you know what? He did. Yeah. Listen, to what he, listen to what Bundy said. Bundy used to carry sometimes bodies in and out of an apartment. Um, I'm convinced there were two locations in uh, his 565 First Avenue in Salt Lake City, Utah. The apartment, the, uh, the rooming house he had in... Um, near the University of Utah. He was the um, house manager. He was like the, the apartment manager. Yeah. And, and his, his job title was keeping the grass cut, showing a kid, a college kid coming through who, who wanted a spare room. So he handled those duties. Well, um, I always felt like he took uh, some women up at night into his room, kept them a while. You know, they must have already been comatose. Kept them for a, a number of days, like, uh, you know, uh, Melissa Smith and Laura and Amy, because they were gone for such a long time before they were discovered. When they were discovered, they hadn't been dead that long. So he, so there's two places where he could have kept them in the room upstairs. You've got to look at this as like a Linda Ann Healy abduction in reverse, where he took Linda Ann Healy out of a rooming house in the University District of, of, of Washington mm -hmm. and carried her out into the night, which is a bold, bold abduction. And so he would have done that and taken maybe them up from his vehicle, his VW, up the steps of the second floor apartment in Utah. It would take him about a minute. He's just that kind of person to do that. Also, there's a, there's a like a, a downstairs cellar in, in back of the place, and this thing was locked, and Bundy had the key. Uh -huh. now, he probably kept uh, Debbie Kent there because he said, I only kept Kent. Uh, Kent at my apartment for one day. And he never confirmed he had the other ones. But here's what Bundy, that he didn't admit he had the other ones up in his room, but but they, Mike Fisher suspects that he, that, that he did have it at the complex. 
But we got two places. We got upstairs in the room, and we got down at the cellar. So he's keeping them for a while, playing with them, doing things. They're not dead yet, but they are no doubt comatose. He, he so liked them the when they didn't resist. Right. And, but here's the thing. Bundy himself told Stephen Michaud, and you can see this in um, their book, Conversations with a Killer. Michaud was asking him about that, and he's speaking in the third person. And he's talking about carrying things in and out of the apartment, and he's referring to bodies. And Michaud says something like, well, I mean, really, wouldn't you find that risky? He said, I don't think this person even believed that he could, like, be caught. It, it, it was almost like he could go through... Yeah, like Lamont Cranston, yeah. who had the power to cloud men's minds. Yeah, and you know what? Normal people wouldn't think, oh, my God, I would never do that. But there was a lot of, a number of abductions that Bundy attempted and was successful in completing. And they're the kind of things that a normal mind would say, oh, you don't want to do that. There's too much danger of being caught. But but he wouldn't, you know, he wasn't like that. And when he told this to Michelle, it was like, I just felt like I could walk through walls and no matter what, no one was going to catch me. So that's really all it takes. And in Bundy's case, you know, there was only one time in his entire career until he was apprehended in Florida. I hate to call it a career, but for him it was like a career of murder. It was only one time he came even close to being apprehended, and it wasn't even by the police. He was upstairs at a uh, Pocatello, um, it was Idaho State University in in Pocatello, and he had, I don't know how he got past the people on the first floor, but he got up. It was like a six or seven story building. It was a it was an all female uh, building, mm-hmm. and he got up there, and a male who works in the building ran into him and said, "What are you doing here?" And he was making up an excuse. He, he asked Bundy for identification. Bundy said, "I don't have any." So, well, you're gonna have to leave right now. And Bundy did. But if you think of everything he did and how he planned these abductions and pulled them off and did everything he could to keep himself safe, there's only, again, there's only one time he even came close to being uh, apprehended, and that was in at uh, Idaho State University. So it was really strange. But he was very successful at, at what he did, and he was, his mind wasn't normal. Because he no, really? You think so? <laughs> it's, not, it's not normal. But yet Big Kid successful. Bundy wasn't normal? <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> I know that's coming as a shock, but he's yeah. not normal. <laughs> no, thank God. Yeah, Mike Boyer has a question for you. In one sure. of the, the cases, um, <clears throat> at, um, his uh, abduction was so violent that the young, young lady was rendered uh, unconscious, knocked out of her yeah. shoes, and she lost her earring. Oh, yes, that's George Ann Hawkins. And he went back the next day Yes. While the police were everywhere yes. to retrieve the earrings and the shoe. Yeah. Here's what he did with that. Um, he had met her in the alley behind Greek Row, which mm-hmm. is on 17th Avenue. And when she agreed to go with him, they walked through the road and took a right and went up uh, just a few feet, not, not far at all and then turned left on 17th. And when they went about a block down, they turned into a parking lot on the left, which would be the same side of the street, and there was a darkened parking lot. It was gravel at the time. It's paved now, but it's still there. And um, so he hit her so hard, she lost both her earrings and came out of one of her shoes. So he he had a standard way of doing this, and he admitted uh, in this abduction and... He did this with a number of others, too. He had placed two things behind his, the right portion of, uh, of the car, m- meaning the passenger side, b- like behind the left, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the rear right passenger uh, tire, and he, he placed uh, this short scroll <laughs> bar. I have one just like this. It's a Sears model 6577, very short. It's only like 17 and a half or 18 inches long. He wanted something that short because when he's hitting somebody in the car in the passenger seat, he had to have it short enough that he could wield that thing in the car. Well, anyway, while George Ann Hawkins was no doubt placing his crutches in the car and then she raised back up, he waylaid her, and he hit her so hard 
that two of the earrings flew off and one shoe. Well, he didn't bother about, you know, doing anything about that then. He put it in the car and he left. But the next day, he rode his bicycle. And now all the police activity was like just one block away. But if a patrolman would have seen a woman's shoe in the parking lot, they would have, they, and that area would have been taped off immediately. Now, he hadn't touched the shoe. There would be no prints, but he was glad to get in there and get out without them seeing him. So knowing Bundy, he probably rode, he put, he put him in a little thing, uh, a pouch that was attached to the bike, and he no doubt rode right back down there because that would be his nature just to, just to see what Quick they're doing. Trip, yeah. course, they're not paying any attention to anybody on a bike. There's, there's people, the kids are everywhere. So, yeah, he did that. So, yeah, that was George Ann Hoggins. But that testifies to how hard he hit her for, for, for those to fly off and for her to come out of her shoe. Uh, did he make it a habit of going back to see the abduction site to look for evidence? Uh, no. Well, he did that in the case. Here's what else he did. Now, he was a pretty new to this stuff, but he took Hawkins, the same girl, to uh, up in the hills of uh, Issaquah, and he said she started to wake up, up again on the way there. Thought she was, for a second, thought he was the, um, the tutor for her Spanish test that she was going to have the next day. And uh, he said, you know, he, this was one of those nights when he, a lot of times Bunny didn't want to have any interaction with them and make them more human. So he whacked her again in the head and uh, he got her out of the car up there. And he admitted he soon strangled her right after that. Okay. And then when Bob Keppel was interviewing him, he, Keppel knew, because Bundy had already said he, was, he stayed with her until it was almost dawn. And Keppel asked him what he was doing all that time, and he, he didn't want to answer that. Well, what he was doing was having sex with a dead body. He severed her head uh, with a hacksaw, uh, and, um, but he had, after he had done all of this, <clears throat> He said that he was, when he was on his way back, and this is a rural area, and he said he was tossing everything out the window, and uh, crowbar, this, that, or whatever. And in his earlier periods, he would get rid of a lot of stuff, but he got better about not getting rid of it later. But um, he got rid of this stuff. And then I think, I think Kevel said they were searching that area, and he found a rusted crowbar, so it's probably that crowbar. But... He would go back sometimes, to, and he did there, just to make sure where he had left the body, there was nothing there. However, he would sometimes go back knowing there was no evidence there, but for sexual reasons, even if he wasn't going to have sex with a decaying body, he would, like, masturbate and do other things while he was there because he considered those areas where either they were killed, and if they were different, uh, than where they were planted, uh, the what people call the dump site. He considered those very sacred. They're very mystical to him. And always with these people, it's, it's sexually driven. And so he would do things that way. But that would be the reason why sometimes he would go back so it wouldn't always be just about evidence. Hmm. Now, any time I've been to Issaquah, I don't think I've ever had sex there. So I don't... Well, you know what? And if you did, it would be better just to have a, a, a real-life a, partner. A, a live person. Yeah. Concerned about that. Well, I like did you ever? Yeah. Well, boo, people do strange things, you know, when they're under pressure, uh, and everyone yeah. needs a hobby. But I mean, this guy's made some decisions that I don't think were really socially acceptable, especially not to the family of his victims. But if you're out there in Issaquah, which believe me, I've been to Issaquah several times, uh -huh. and uh, I could see why a person before the housing boom there, why a person might get lonely. But by the time uh -huh. uh, Bundy was there. I mean, uh, uh, it wasn't desolate. I mean, we're talking about lots of people live there. You know, yeah. housing developments. I mean, yeah, you could go down and find a gravel road down here. And, and I mean, I yeah. had five acres in uh, North Bend, which isn't all that far from Issaquah. And that yeah, was a, a little, little bit on the rustic side, you know. But uh -huh. still, there are areas that are very populated. So, yeah, I mean, exactly. uh, it's a rough, he's taken a lot of chances. Oh, yeah. No, he was. I mean, without question, he was. Now, the area that, that he dumped them in, it was off um, an old logging road. Like, there's the um, there's the, the freeway, the highway, and then there's the 
what was known as the old Sunset Highway, mm -hmm. and that would shoot off. And if you look at a photograph from the air, and all this was encased in trees, and then he drove his VW up this logging road, which I don't think they were logging uh, anymore at the time, but th they had used that area pretty well. So they were not doing any houses or anything like that. Real secluded. I don't know how that area looks today, but it, 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 it's probably not really developed there. But so he kind of knew where he was going. I'll tell you something else that was extremely weird. When um, Bundy went to Central Washington State College, known as Central Washington University now, and you, you know, you, you uh, it's, it's near Ellensburg, and mm -hmm. um, it's really in Ellensburg. You go across Cascades, and um, and it's, it's a nice area. But I interviewed a guy named Kent Barnard for my book, The Trail of Ted Bundy, and Barnard, it was his birthday, and his girlfriend was going to Central Washington State College. He went to another college, and of course, I've got his report. In fact, once we got together when I was writing the, the trail of Ted Bundy and trying to locate him and finally did, I actually uh, uh, copied and scanned and emailed the report to him, his own report to the, to, to, to the cops. Anyway, but he saw um, him twice that day. But what was so surreal, after he left there, he was going back on the highway, I forget the number of what that main highway is, that, that freeway, but <coughs> up in, in the hills of Issaquah, he looked up there and he could see the glowing red taillights, the round taillights, glowing taillights of a small car, like about the size of a VW. That was Bundy. Mm. That was Bundy, and he had, he was in Rancourt uh, up there. Of course, Susan Rancourt wasn't found there. He then took the body of Susan. He no doubt killed her up there, but he took the body and he, uh, she would, her skull and and portion of the remains would be found on Taylor Mountain. Uh, but 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 he no doubt killed her right there. So he saw that and he didn't know what those glowing. But he does today, and we talked about it. And I said, well, I told him I said, well, that's going to be something that you'll never forget. <laughs> of course, this was on his birthday, so that's that's that's, that's another odd. Thing, but, yeah. One uh, one thing that just uh, kind of flashed in my mind, an old distant uh, distant memory of back uh, when the Earth was young and steam was still rising from the surface of the planets, and my brother was still working in the prosecutor's office in Seattle, mm -hmm. and we had the story about uh, the suspect with the uh, brown Volkswagen or whatever it was, and a woman comes in and says, uh, I think it might be my boyfriend. Oh, oh, well, oh, yeah, well, now, okay, I, I know exactly what, what you're talking about. Lake Sammamish right. um, is where they, that's kind of where he stepped, he he kind of went too far. That's what Janice thought. Yeah, Janice thought, and then he came back later that day and got Denise Naslin. Well, there was a number of people, there's a couple of women that went with him. One, one lady couldn't go, got all the way to the car, couldn't go, because he, she, he said he needed help with the boat, but. It's, oh, he said that stuff in my house, parents' house at Isquash. He said, I'm sorry, I can't go. I'm waiting on my, my husband and, and parents. So, but people saw him. Uh, they heard the name Ted. They saw the... So this composite, which doesn't look a lot like Bundy, but it gets his, I guess, his hair pretty close to what it was. But in any event, somebody comes up to Liz, Bundy's girlfriend, and uh, one morning at work and said, hey, look at this. He said, this composite drawing. This guy's named... Ted, he said, "You're." He drives a Volkswagen, and you know you have a Ted, and he, he drives a like a beige Volkswagen. You know, hey, you know what do you think of that? And of course, that really bothers her. <laughs> yeah, I would and, so. Yeah, that really bothered her. You know, I, you really got to feel sorry for Liz because she's in love with this guy. He's, she, you know, in love. She thinks he's in love with her. He's, I guess, the loves her the best a psychopath can. And you know, the daughter, and so, and 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 yet, she ha she's having these internal battles. Could this be him? Well, plus the fact he bit her ass so hard, it kind of bothered her. <clears throat> well, that may be mm -hmm. too. Well, you know what he did one time? He was, uh, he had had normal sexual relations. They met in September of 69. Uh, they had had normal sexual relations for most of uh, all those years. But she said his sexual habits, his sexual desires started to change as he came into 1974. 
And he said, she said he wanted to have a lot of anal sex. He wanted to tie me up. He, she said no to the anal sex. She said, okay, you can tie me up. He said, can I like choke you a little bit or whatever? She must have agreed to it. But she told Dave Yoakum, the prosecutor, she said, I put a stop to that I, because he was doing this one night. And she probably only did this a couple times with him. She, he was doing this one night, and he disappeared. He was he was gone, and she was trying to get him to stop, and he wouldn't stop. It was Uh-oh. like he wasn't there. And Uh-oh. it took her a minute to get him to stop. Now, listen, this is what's interesting about this. When that monstrous side of him would emerge, it's like the normal Ted would recede, and he and he ain't there. And so what happened was the same thing, almost the same thing happened without any physical contact of either sex or choking when they had taken a raft trip down to Yakima. And he started to get moody. He was okay when they began it. And they were, uh, and, and, uh, but he started to get moody on the trip. I think that he was thinking about some of the victims, and he was starting to kind of internalize some of that stuff and kind of go over it, and he was starting to change. They stopped and they had lunch. They just pulled up on the bank, and they pulled the, pulled the you know raft up, and they went and they had lunch, laid a, bla- uh, a blanket down, had something. And he was kind of quiet, but talking, but quiet mostly. And they got back into the, 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 the raft, and then before an hour was out, she's going along it for no reason, he pushes her out of the raft into the into the Yakima. She said when she came out of the river, came out and, and came back to the surface, he, his face was blank. She said it looked like he wasn't seeing me. He wasn't there. And it took him a moment to come to. And so I say in the Bundy murders, I said, you know, this is, I mean, was, she was with the monster now. He... I mean, that, that's who was in the ascendancy right then. Right. That was that murderous part of Bundy. So, you know, I think after that, you know, he might have had some trouble. He uh, might have had trouble know, keeping the, the channel changer yeah. from changing on him. Yeah. Yeah, it was getting harder for him to do that. Well, that goes back to that classic story Anna Rule told me about when she took him to the dance and kept saying, Dad, go dance with that girl over there. And he looks at her, and she's got long, dark hair parted in the middle. <laughs> yeah. And his worlds collided. You yeah. know, they try to keep that separate. You know, yeah. my day job from my night job. Uh, yes, exactly. And exactly. all of a sudden, when worlds collide right there, right. and Anne's right. going, come on, Ted, ask her to dance, ask her to dance. And Ted's yeah. just getting more drunk and more drunk and more drunk to avoid mm-hmm. it. And she has to take yep. him home and, and put him to bed. You know, and I, I asked her, I said, Ann, and regular listeners have heard me tell this before, sorry to tell it again, but for you new people. Mm-hmm. I said, Ann, you talk about Ted with such affection because you, you know, worked with him and you knew him and you were friends and all that. Mm-hmm. But which was Ted? Was it the nice guy that was your good buddy? Yeah. Or was it the one that would have murdered that dark-haired girl and had sex with her headless corpse or whatever? Right. And she says the second. That was the worst. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. really creepy. Yeah. But, no, I mean, that's, that's, no, that's okay, real... That's, well, that's that's real creepy stuff. Now, what I... creepy. Uh, if he has what they used to call, they said, like, dual personality disorder. Now they call it... Right. Uh, severe detachment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is where you go blank under stress or in certain conditions. It's like you're right. not there. Uh, right. And for Willis, is the only studies I've read on it have been about women who have this condition. They don't know that they have it until they have a child. Because all of a sudden, the kid will go from two weeks old to six months old with them having no memory of those six months. because oh, the, Because the other personality has taken over, and they've been, shall we say, unconscious, you know? Yeah, I don't think I don't think anybody that examined Bundy felt like he was like one of those E people and all these different personalities. I don't think they they thought that. Um, so, you know, I, he's very hard to define. That's, what's, like that's what's so weird hard. about him, because, I mean, as you know in your research, psychopaths aren't that complex. In fact, they're really no. shallow. 
You know, yeah. they tried it, they liked it, they did it again. You know, that's yeah, about and, as yeah, deep yeah. as it gets. And, and, you know, most psychopaths aren't killers. No. There's, there's a lot. Of, they just, I mean. They become politicians. Yeah, he's right. But it's, it's, to a psychopath, it, the world is his oyster. I mean, it's, it, it's whoever you step on or whatever you do, uh, how many body, bodies you leave metaphorically in your wake, none of that matters because you don't care. So it's real different for them. And, you know, there's one lady that put out a book. She's a psychopath. She said, you know, it's just the way it is. Now, I, I, I make sure that I conduct my way, my, my life, in a normal way. But the feelings aren't there. I'm doing this out of my own will, out of right. my own volition. Exactly. And that's what you got to do if you want to do. So it's probably a very low percentage of people that have this condition that would turn out to be a, a Ted Bundy. But, I, you know, I don't know. It just But when they do and when they're violent like this, then, the, you know, I mean, they're just like just holy terrors. They're just, I mean, they'll do anything. And so it, it really doesn't matter. But it's just, and, and, you know, here's something else, too. You know, they, they can do these studies. I've, I've seen these studies. I've, I've read these reports, different changes within the brain, certain things happen. Oh, that's another thing I cover in this book. Um, one of the women, I believe it was Jane Curtis at Central Washington State College before, I think it was probably uh, before they, she, uh, Bundy got ran court. She was dropping his books, doing stuff, and, you know, she offered help. His eyes looked normal. They looked completely normal. And she said, he just seemed real normal, and his eyes were fine. She said, but after I agreed to help him, Boing. and we took a ride at the library and walked over this short little bridge that goes over a man-made pond, and we're getting to the place where we go in the parking lot, she said, she just happened to turn to her left and look at him, and his eyes had, be, had changed, <clears throat> and they had become weird. They, they were strange-looking. Yep. And th this is, so I, so I, I contacted, I, I was friends with Dr. Al Carlisle, I contacted him about that, and I asked him about this. He said, well, you know, there are a number of, of reports that, you know, I have interviewed women, and, she said, and they've said right before an attack occurred from a man, they noticed that his eyes changed. And he said, I've, that's just probably a, neuro, a temporary neurotransmitter change, and that's how it's manifesting in their eyes. But... I've got a little thing in there, a little small chapter saying, did, did, did Ted Bundy's eyes like ever alert victims? And, and, and in fact, they did. And uh, so what was happening to Bundy? When Bundy was just first talking to her, there was no sense within him yet that he was going to have her. And so his eyes remained normal. But the more she walked with him and the more she got out of the light and they were heading towards that abandoned area on campus, right. he picked the most desolate area on campus at Central Washington State College, and she looks at him, he already was assuming she's mine. And that thing came into full view, and, you know, that bothered her. So these oh, yeah. are the little it's things like that happen, but, yeah, they're just real... Goat eyes, they call people. them. Goat eyes. Because yeah, goats have yeah. eyes like human beings, but it doesn't have the emotion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very dead. Yeah. Yeah, interesting interesting stuff. Yeah, well, I think that's, that might be a phrase that uh, Robert Hare used in Without Conscience. I can't remember so many of those. I can't keep them all straight. But, no, oh, I yeah. think, yeah, like yeah. I mentioned to you before, there is a website for sociopaths run by sociopaths. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, good. And, well, yeah, because and, and the thing you said about the, the person who, who doesn't do bad things because it would be problematic for them. It's the same uh -huh. advice given there. One of the sociopaths said, I don't care about anybody, but I don't do these mean things to them because I know it'll make my life unpleasant if I do yes. them. So just right. to protect me from having to go to prison or any number of things, right. I purposely, oh, yeah. I behave, I behave myself. You know, I don't do uh -huh. the things that I, that I would normally do or abnormally yeah. do. Because sure. I, that's why they say if you can get to a sociopath or a psychopath before the age of 14 and explain that yeah. to them, they'll be okay. It's yeah. like the majority of pedophiles yeah. uh, never do anything wrong. It stays in the realm of fantasy. 
But oh, even yeah. okay. though, but even those won't go get counseling because the word pedophile makes everyone think that all pedophiles are out doing horrible things. So yeah. they're, they're afraid to go get help. <laughs> oh sure. Who's that fellow that wrote the book Snakes in Suits? Oh, I don't know, but and it's that, a great title. <laughs> yeah, that was about psychopaths as well. I just couldn't remember the fellow's name. But yeah, and so you know what? I mean, that's just the way it was. Now, you know, you look at somebody like Bundy. You know, we want to say they're crazy. Well, I mean, legally they're not. They're, they're legally sane. Bundy knew who he was. But you know, to go out and do the things that he did. And uh, but you know what? This is interesting too. He he would find it necessary to jumpstart himself with the use of alcohol. Uh, you know, use it like as an elixir to jumpstart himself to get in that get that groove to where he yeah to make it easier for him to jump in that realm. And you know, after the attack is is gone uh, forward, and he's and he's in the midst of it. And that that energy that is produced just from doing that takes over, and then the alcohol isn't necessary. Wendy did say once there's a woman in the uh, now this was before the George Ann Hawkins abduction, but he said that he had every intention of making her a victim, and he did the same thing. And they walked to the car. He said, for some reason, I got to the car and I didn't want to do it. Hmm. He said, okay, well, thank you so much. And then, and then after he killed Hawkins, kind of like in the same way, at the same area, he said, "Oh, what have I done?" Huh? This woman could this woman could surface and say, "You know, I had this strange guy that he he did this with me. He was on crutches. He was fumbling with a briefcase. I helped him to his car. He drove a Volkswagen. He thanked me, and then went on his way. He said he lives in the you know not too far or whatever, and." He, He's been a student at, at, at UW. So, you know, that's so what he was thinking. Oh, <laughs> my God, I just caught myself. <laughs> but then you've got to ask yourself, why did he call it off? But he did. It was odd. It was, it, it, if, he, if he did that much, it had to have been very, very rare. Yeah, so whatever the... Once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike has another question for you. Uh, snakes oh, oh, yeah. in suits. Uh, Dr. Yes. Paul Babick. And Dr. Oh, Robert D. Hare. Okay, see, okay, that's also Dr. Hare. Yeah, yeah snakes in suits. <laughs> yeah. I have a that's question. Right. Um, he's, yeah. uh, he visited Lake Shamish? Uh, Sammamish. Sammamish. Lake Sammamish. Yeah, well, I'm from here, not the Northwest. Sure. Um, well, he visited, the, he visited a week ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, did he make it a habit of checking out his uh, abduction locations prior to the actual abductions? Uh, he, he, yes, yes. He, uh, he would plan and he would do what he called dry run. But he was at Lake Sammamish a week before, but the authorities aren't sure why he was there. Uh, he, he, this is what's strange. He ran into some people that he knew, stopped, had a beer with them, and they talked for a while. And I don't, we don't know, the, the authorities don't know whether he was thinking about abducting somebody that day or whether it was just a dry run. But wouldn't you think, and here's where the normal mind comes in again, wouldn't you think he might have said to himself, well, let's see, I ran into three or four people that I know, had a beer with them, and I'm supposed to come here next week and do this thing. So if it's a dry run, uh, you know, we don't know, but you would think maybe I should. A normal person would think I ran into friends there. Maybe I shouldn't come back next week. But no, he came back next week. But you're right. He would plan things and he would go over these things. And he was really he didn't leave anything to chance. So he was trying to work out everything so that his exposure was less and less. And you got to remember, he had a hallmark. It was a hallmark of Bundy to be able to abduct women usually and not even be seen. And something that I, that I spoke about, it, this is in my new book, I go into some detail, but I first presented it to the public last September, a year ago, when I was speaking at a serial killer conference at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Uh, and I, pres I, I spoke on Monday there and I said, 
it appears to me, because when Bundy first started that killing, it was the middle of the night, then it was at night, and not really that we know of, much day activity at all, just nothing. It was all at night, and then all of a sudden, bam, Lake Sammamish, broad daylight, 40,000 people there. It's Janice Hot before noon, comes back and gets Denise Nasler at 420, between 420 and 4.30. That's where the composite drawing comes from. That's where the TED comes from. That's where the VW, beige VW comes from. And right after that, he went back into only nighttime abductions. And he stayed in those nighttime abductions until uh, he abducted um, Denise Oliverson uh, in 1975, I believe that's April uh, 1975, uh, that was the first daylight abduction again, so it must be that he was, he pulled himself back and must have said to himself at one point, I think I might have overstepped it with Lake Sammamish. I mean, the way Bundy was, just think he abducted two people from a park where 40,000 people were there and got away with it. One in the morning, one in the afternoon. But he decided, you know what, I'm, put, I'm putting too much heat on myself. I'll, I don't want them to connect me with that. I'm dead. I drive a Volkswagen. I don't want that to happen. So he goes back to nighttime abductions. So anyway, it's just an interesting thing. But, yes, to answer your question, he would do dry runs. Hmm. What a strange duck. He was strange indeed, yes. You know, what thing is he, he's not the most... He's not the most prolific serial killer in American history. There's people who no. killed a lot more. I mean, Spokane yeah. serial killer and the, the guy with the 93 yeah. uh, victims or whatever. Oh, yeah. But there's something about him. And I don't know whether yeah. it's because he looks so clean-cut, nice, conservative Republican kid, you know, yeah. who's busy having necrophilia in his spare time. Maybe they all yeah, do. He doesn't look like yeah, he doesn't look like it. Here's the thing about Bundy. There's several things that make him stand out. He is he was articulate, college graduate, law student, political campaigner, ran in some upper-end circles in Washington State because of the politics he was in. People told me that used to know him. Ross Davis said he could have done anything he wanted to do. I mean, he Sadly, he did. Yeah, he would have made it. So that sets Bundy apart from most killers already. But it's also more than that. It's been so extremely successful. I hate to use that word, but we're going to have to use it. So extremely successful in abduction and murder for so long, having killed so many. And, and, and like I say, only one time when he even came close to being apprehended until the very end. And then when you look at some of these abductions, the Lake Sammamish abduction, the Linda Healy abduction out in the middle of the night, carrying her out into the middle of the night unconscious, and where anybody in the university district could be coming home at, at she, they think they got her, he got her between 2 and 4 in the morning. Kids could be coming home, and you, just know, you don't know who's going to see you. But he did it anyway and got away with it. So this is the kind of stuff that, it's kind of set him apart. But there are others who have killed more. I mean, Bundy probably killed in the lower 40s. He may have killed a little bit more, but it's not going to be like some people say 100 or more. That's, I think that's absurd. But he certainly probably killed 42, 43, maybe something like that. That's, that's well within what, what we know about him. So it's really who Ted Bundy is, the character of Ted Bundy. And I say in the Bundy murders, the normal mind has a, it reaches a place where when you learn all these normal things about him, and then you see how diabolical he was, it, it produces almost a disconnect. Mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine the outer Bundy uh, being so different from what the inner Bundy was. And that's a, uh, kind of like a dichotomy that you just, it's hard for people to kind of bring together. So that's one of the things that creates a fascination within people uh, about Ted Bundy in this case. Well, um, we've, we've uh, find this microphone fascinating when I see you'll kill it in a minute. <laughs> That's Mark C.G. Boyer choking to death at the uh, next table. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> That's not good. Well, we have uh, the fires out here have made the air quality absolutely horrible. Yeah, how is the area where you guys are? Well, we're, we're fire-free, although uh, Matt yeah. is smoldering. 
Yeah, and it's, oh. it is hot. But I, the uh, the uh, smoke is thick and smelly, yep. and all of us with Copet are not doing well. Yeah. And uh, some friends of mine live in, uh, what do you, how you pronounce it, White Kappa, Yakappa, whatever it is. Oh, you ca- you, you Kappa. Yeah, you, you can Kappa, too. Mm. It sounds like a well, you know, sorority. <laughs> well, it does. Uh, their, their entire, I mean, everything destroyed. The fire took the house, uh, except for the oh. people. Except for the people in it, thank God they got, at least got fire insurance. But the fire insurance is going to pay for the rare photographs of the old family members and no. memorabilia. How about, and, the, wait, how about the family was doing the gender reveal on their baby and they started one? Of these yeah, fires. yeah, that's how oh I heard. Oh my God, that was the that was the one where uh, you cap or whatever it is. Yeah, you Oh man, that's awful. Well, they say that ten percent of the population of Oregon. I don't even know if this is true, but somebody said on the news. They've had to leave their homes. Yes, it's true. It's true. Through. Three of the small towns in Oregon totally wiped out, yeah. destroyed, yeah, aren't there awful. anymore. Are you Madeline Kahn? <laughs> Why? It's true. 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 I want to shoop. <laughs> Madame von Stroop. Madame, yeah, Madame von Stroop. The Teutonic Twilio. <laughs> oh. Better be better to be hung like a horse than hung as a horse thief. That's a great that's a great movie. That's better. That's much better. I like it that we were actually hanging the horse. <laughs> Everything below the waist is kaput. That's right. Um, so the last uh, uh, group of your of uh, books that you put together on this subject um, yeah. are essentially tailored toward the victims and their stories. Why did you choose that? Well, you know. I wanted, I told basically Bundy's story in the Bundy murders. And then there's a lot of testimonies out there from people that, you know, have not, and I wanted to bring more of the victims out. I know for the trail of Ted Bundy, I also wanted to let people know, because I didn't ever think I would write a second companion volume to the Bundy murders. So still on, still the trail three. of Ted Bundy, I put all of Michael Fisher's communications to me and everything that people might want to like to have a look at. A lot, uh, a lot of stuff from Al Carl, Al, Dr. Carl, Al, because we, we were also friends. Yeah, we do Al Carl all the time. What's the name of the book? Oh, well, uh, the no, Ted Bundy's by Enigma. The Enigma of Ted Bundy. It'll be out in about a month. All right. Excellent. Kevin Evans Sullivan, thank you for being on True Crime. Uncensored. Always a pleasure. Hey. Yes, it is for me, too. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Hey, Pearl. What? What's next? Magic Ben Allen in the deepest of decadence on OutlawRadioLive.com.